this is a black story. It's about motherhood. It's about it's about how blackness fits into this world and this country as a mother in different ways. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. Today's guest is Lisa Williamson Rosenberg, author of the novel Embers on the Wind. From undergrad at Princeton to life as a professional ballerina and professional therapist, Lisa has done a lot. Diverse experiences she brought to her characters, some publishing industry insiders thought was unbelievable, even for fiction. I wrote this book. It was about a biracial ex-ballerina who was bulimic. It was kind of my story, but a much more interesting character. And I worried it and I kept hearing, why is she biracial? Like, why all these things? Can she be just, can she be just black? And then I was like, wait, why? Why do I not get to exist as Mm. me? Lisa has written seven novels, including one completely in verse. But Embers on the Wind is still her publishing debut. Amid so much rejection, including from Black editors, Lisa explains why she believed this book was the one. Plus, how leaving ballet for Princeton taught her to take up space. And the lesson she learned about breaking barriers from a publishing pioneer in her own family. That and more is next, when Black and Published continues. So let's jump in, and I know you know the first question. So when did you know that you were a writer? So it was early, and I will say that I knew I was a writer before I had any right to know that I was a writer, meaning my father was an art director at Viking Press. And he was, I want to say it was 1959-ish. And he was the first Black executive at Viking Press. My mother was was a teacher. She taught early childhood education all the way up to teaching teachers education. And um, she believed in children's stories. So she would hold a piece of paper and have me narrate to her. I would just tell her a story and she would write it down. But because my father was in publishing, our whole house was books. Everything we went to as a family was a book event. There was always like a book opening, a book launch. Um, If my dad had a business trip, it was sales conference. That's where daddies go. So I always thought that that's what you did. You became a writer. Hmm. So when I was little, I wanted to be a writer and a ballerina because it was 19. I was born in 1966, 1970. Any little girl you threw a stone at would want to be a ballerina. Um, I actually happened to do those things. Yes, you did. (laughs) We're going to get there. (laughs) Um, But but, yeah, I was going to say the first time I actually... knew I could do it. I went to the ethical culture school in New York City, which was very progressive. And there was a big creative writing once a week, creative writing, get out your journals and write. And that went all the way from second grade to fifth grade, Mm -hmm. get out your journals and write. And that was my favorite, favorite thing. And I did, I wrote a lot of stories um, based on the books that I loved 
So between like your formative education and your father being like this pioneering force in the literary world at Viking mm-hmm. Press, writing was pretty much what you were going to do regardless, it seems like. <laughs> I think so. I, I think so. You know, also writing came naturally and you can make it up. You know, nowadays we would probably have diagnosed me with a with a touch of ADHD because I did very well in school. Um, but I was always much more interested in what my neighbor was doing and what the teacher had on in the stuff up on the wall. So writing was great because I could make it all up. I didn't have to remember the fact. I didn't have to keep anything straight. So then how did that carry through for you? Because you were considering go- teaching after college but you also did become a ballerina before you carried yeah. on. So, so let me explain where, that. where does this so, all happen? So how it happens. So I, the reason I considered teaching was after, it wasn't just after college, it was after ballet. Okay. So the way it worked in the 1980s, when I was a senior in high school and, you know, all my teachers were like, you got to go to Swarthmore, you got to go to this one, you got to that one, telling me where to apply. And I'm like, no, I'm going to dance because ballet companies want you young. So you can learn the repertoire, learn the style. They can mold you. They don't want you at 23. They want you at 17, 16 or 17 to become an apprentice. It's at least a major ballet company. Mm-hmm. And um, that was what I was going to do. College can wait. And I remember I got into Princeton and my mom's like, can you please visit the school? I was like, I'm not going to college. I'm not throwing my life away. I'm talented. I don't want to be. And my mom is like classic Jewish mama. I asked very little <laughs> and like, there's nothing you can say when, when you get a Jewish mama and she's got, like, I ask very little. And you're like, yes, she really asks nothing of me and you feel horrible. And you're like, okay, I'll go with you. And I go to Princeton and I visit this place and it's like sprawling hills and fabulous towers and buildings. And, and I was like, you mean they want me to come here? And I was like, okay, we got to figure this whole ballet thing out. Cause I don't want to come here when I'm older. I want to go now. But so anyway, I was determined to audition for a ballet company and get in. And I actually was accepted to American Ballet Theater's second company at the time. I did their summer program before. And I'd gotten into Princeton. And I knew I'd gotten into American Ballet Theater's second company. At the end of the summer program, they were going to announce who got a contract. And they bring each person into the office and they say to you, you know, congratulations, welcome to American Ballet Theater 2. This is not the big company, but it was like a theater company and they did their own little tours. Um, And the two directors at the end of the summer program called me into the office and I knew I'd gotten into Princeton and I hadn't decided what Mm. I was going to do. And I kind of had plans to go to Princeton, but I was like, let me just see if I get into ABT 2, I'm going to ABT 2. There's no way. I am not going to fulfill that dream. And um, they called me into the office and they said to me, well, you know, some of us were 16, 17. They said, well, you're done with school, aren't you? And I said, well, I'm done with high school. And they said, do you have other plans? And without even pontificating, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to Princeton. And the reason I chose Princeton over ballet was that after a summer of basically working and learning choreography and doing all this stuff, I loved it and it was fantastic and it was beautiful. But I also knew that I did not have the maturity to be in my adult career. Mm. And that that is the reason. I was scared. You're expected to be 
a full adult. You're in a ballet company. Mm -hmm. And also your voice is not welcome. And that's just how it is. No one is interested. You're a ballet dancer. You're a vessel for a choreographer. When you're a choreographer, then you can speak. Um, But you you, you have no voice. And talking about race in the ballet world is so... It's so surreal on so many levels. And when we talk about white supremacy, it's like the ballet world, it isn't even like the white ideal. There is one way. And most white girls don't look like that. Our aesthetic in the 80s was like, if you have boobs or a butt, if you have anything, that's fat. If you're smiling, that's fat. If you have muscle tone, that's fat. Like there was one way of being. Most white girls can't do that. Most black girls can't do that either. But there were a lot of fewer black girls auditioning in the first place. But I know that I was acceptable to ballet companies for a few reasons. Like I had the body, except I had boobs, which you read about in my essay, The Wrong Pair. I had boobs, but I was an expert at strapping them down and concealing that. But I, an eating disorder and smoking a lot of cigarettes and therefore not eating enabled me to have a physique that was like, wow, we can hire a black girl and be all, we hired a black girl. Mm. And then you would look for me on stage, most lighting and be like, where's the black girl? Because I was light enough and I fit in body type enough, but you could see me in the program and I look like this. And they're like, oh, there's a black girl in the company. But there was none of, there was, there was no representation, but there was this aesthetic. And I knew that I fit that aesthetic. And if we can look back and call that internalized racism on my part, I would probably think there was some of that. It's like, no, I'm going to fight racism by making it on the, on, in this white place. Because if I leave, there will be no black girls. Okay. So. One, my ballet teacher trained at Dance Theater of Harlem. But in talking about fighting white supremacy and institutionalized racism by being mm-hmm. present and representative on the ba- in the ballet company and, the- and on the ballet stage, how do you feel now doing it as an author? Because publishing is still very white. It is still considered like, you know, those hallowed halls to be invited into when right. you get a deal and you get accepted and they want to publish your book through this big major press. How do you find that world now considering all of your experience from ballet? So there's a stopping ground in the middle. So before we got to publish it, I went to Princeton. Yes. (laughs) And Princeton is not only like, it's the ivory tower. You know, you go into a building, pretty much any building would have like, you know, portraits, of you know white guys looking important <laughs> and and that was who you were up against <clears throat> not up against that was who who was overseeing you that was whose turf you were on but i got there from the ballet world mm. and in terms of white supremacy princeton is so far ahead i would say it's better than the ballet world Like Princeton can't even compete with the ballet world in terms of white supremacy because Princeton, they did want to hear my voice as a human being. Mm. They weren't saying silence, black girl. I was allowed to speak. Mm. And that was new. 
So this is like my evolution where I did all of my talking and thinking and learning and arguing about race was graduate school. Cause I went to social, I'm a therapist. So I went to a social work school that was very diverse and um, it, it, it was like, Oh, my mind just was opened up in, in grad school. So, and, and learning about the meaning of white privilege and growing up as a kid in the 1970s, a very Brown black presenting in every way kid with a white mom, mm. you go everywhere holding the hand of a white woman. So you're not excluded from things until she lets go of your hand for a second to pay or tie your shoe or so I grew up distant from race but it, it and and seeing my dad as this executive at Viking Press and um, although the pay his pay was not equal to the people in his job and I didn't learn that until later yeah um yeah so we Oh, the original okay. question was about navigating white supremacy oh, and racism. In the public, you were trying to talk about my book. Yes. You were trying to get into the book. Okay, so <laughs> I let me say this. The first book I tried to get an agent with, the first book I tried to query, and I queried, I wrote this book that was basically about Princeton. It was about a biracial ex-ballerina who was bulimic, and, ha- and facing all this food at the university that she had never navigated before. So, but it was kind of my story, but a much more interesting character. And I wrote this book and I queried it and I kept hearing, why is she biracial? It's it's too many things. She can't have an eating disorder, be biracial. And it, you know, what is this character's thing? Like why all these things? Can she be just, can she be just black? It was like, okay, it'll be a different story if she's just black. But like, and then I was like, wait, why? why do I not get to exist as Mm. me? Because you know what? She is black. She's just a different version of the black that you white person are thinking of. And, and, you know, they, people want a black story. When I say people, I mean, white people who who are in charge of publishing, they want a black story that fits what they think a black story is going to be. This was probably 2008. And it was like, it can't be about all those things. And she can't Um, also have two love interests. Like, pick one issue. But they said about this book, they were like, we love the way you write about ballet. You really, you know, you really write about ballet well. It's like, personally, you write about ballet well. It's like, I, that's my, that was my faith and that was my religion. That was everything I knew. So I was like, all right, let me just write a ballet story. I'm going to write a ballet story about ballet dancers trying to get in, you know, second company dancers trying to get into the first company. And I'm going to make it uncomplicated. I mean, I have one black girl. She's not going to be the main character. There were body image issues. And I didn't want the black girl in the ballet school to be the one with the body image issue. Mm -hmm. The black girl in the story is like flawless in every way. But but, But she wasn't the main character and I wanted her to be. So I got an agent with that story. You got an agent with that story. I got an agent with that story. And it's a good story. It's just not my story. And then I wrote another story, another ballet story that's got the race issue in that she, her mother had uh, been part of an Alvin Ailey type company and she wanted to be in the classical, very white school and she was black. So that was a different story. So how many books have you written or stories or started books? The book I published, Embers on the Wind, which we're talking about sooner or later, 
that's probably the seventh book I have completed. My agent has only seen one. And before he saw the YA book, there was another book that I am now revising mm. with what I know and what I feel now and my own truth. And kind of, it's it's a fictitious university based on Princeton. You said that um, ballet was your religion and your culture. Yeah. Do you feel that about writing now? I don't feel that so much now. There's this elitism in the ballet world. And again, you go to Princeton from the ballet world and it's like, yeah, Princeton's an elite university. Yeah, but I come from ballet and none of y'all can wear point shoes. And we would always, you know, you always put yourself above as a ballerina, you know, and this is this whole ballet elitism in, that I've internalized from ballet is also an overcompensation because I am female. I am short. I am little. I am brown. I do not have Roman numerals after my last name. My great-grandfather is not on the wall. Yeah. The guy on the wall may have owned one of my great-grandparents. But so it's, so it's this weird, you're too good for everyone and nowhere near as good. Mm. And, and also that's kind of an eating disorder mentality when, you know, just oversimplifying the anorexic bulimic mindset. It's like you are too good for food that other people need. And yet you are not good enough to take up space. And I'm putting that into the book that I'm working on. Like, that's kind of how it is. It's a very strange dichotomy. And I think in publishing, I was like, all right, I wrote, I wrote a white ballet book. I wrote a white YA ballet book. And that's how I got an agent. If we're going to be very, very clear. That said, my agent is, uh, is not American. He's German and lovely and woke and curious and sweet and like, Wherever I want to go with my writing, he's there. He mm -hmm. is all in. Thank you for being very candid about how you got your mm -hmm. agent by writing a white YA ballet book. Mm -hmm. And then, but you've also had seven full manuscripts that haven't seen the light of day. And now you have Embers on the Wind. Mm -hmm. And everything that you've said about navigating ballet and the elitism, mm -hmm. but also, you know being too good to be somewhere but not good enough to take up space i feel like that's what yeah. black authors navigate in publishing so as you and your agent were bringing embers on the wind out on submission and to market what was the reception and how did you internalize everything that happened in that part of your journey so what happened with embers on the wind and and there's no way this book could be anything but what it is and for people who haven't read it it was inspired by the summer home of my um, father-in-law in the Berkshires. It had been an underground railroad safe house. The myth was that a, a freedom-seeking woman had, had who'd been hiding in the root cellar, which was where the travelers to Canada hid. She came into the house and died, and her spirit was rumored to haunt the house. Why did she come in and die? I wondered that. You know, I had her as an old woman in my mind at first. And I was like, well, what if there's another reason why she didn't, why she came in the house? And that was how I got the teenage girl who was pregnant with her enslaver's child and her ambivalence about the baby came into the house, died. And, you know, there is that um, beloved inspiration, this notion of what happens when I'm going to give birth to a child who's free. So this, this story 
was about it was about the legacy of slavery and what it meant to be a mother. And it was about being a black mother carrying on this legacy. And how is this slave who has run away, this formerly enslaved woman going to see me like, yay, you're free. But where are the other black people? Mm. And yay, you're free. And what do you still have of me? And how how is it for all of us in the country now? Mm. And what do you have to do? You know, so but it, this is a black story. No, this is a black story. It's about motherhood. It's about it's about how blackness fits into this world and this country as a mother in different ways. Um, we got a lot of no's. We got a lot of no's. We got a lot of oh, this is fascinating. We got a lot of, my list is really full. We got, uh, you know, I'm really interested in, in Lisa's writing and looking forward to seeing whatever she's got next. But like, I, I knows, 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 knows. And I was like, you know what? Finally, let's send it to places like Amistad. Let's send it to the Black Publishing imprints. And we did. And a lot of Black editors were like, I am done with slavery stories. Please, no more black trauma, which I which I totally understand and respect. And I was like, finally, I said to him, you know, we're getting all these no's. And I really feel like this book is going to be the one. I really feel like we have to do something. Let's have a phone call. And we had a phone call. He talked to me on the phone. He and I talked for an hour and a half researching black editors and, and editors who had been champions of black women's fiction. Mm-hmm. And literary, it's also literary. A lot of Black women editors were doing YA, they were doing middle grade, they were doing nonfiction, memoir. It was hard to find literary adult fiction, but we did find a handful. And among them was Selena James at Little A Publishing. And I didn't know that Amazon had traditional publishing imprints, which Black woman got my book right away. Loved it. She knew what I was doing. She had me do edits. Then, because it's one nice thing about Amazon is that they can afford to hire whoever they want. They hired a developmental editor to do the edits, to do another round of edits. Mm -hmm. So I did another round of edits with a woman who was also Black called Michelle Flythe, who is so brilliant that she got things about the book that I didn't get and she could see things I was trying to do places I could develop it and what they wanted to do like these were really eight separate stories and they encouraged me to link them as tightly together as possible so it really is all my creativity but all inspired by by words from them Mm. and I felt very you know, I felt very secure knowing it was like also black women who were reading my book and seeing it. And once I found Selena, I, I did not find myself dealing with the white supremacy or the whiteness of the publishing house. I've had an experience that has been really nurturing, nourishing. I felt celebrated, I felt respected and and accepted and like my work is valued and it's been really lucky because I know some other experiences are not so much this way. Little A has been a wonderful 
wonderful experience. I think you're the first person I've spoken to that's gone through one of yeah. Amazon's traditional imprints. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, I don't want you to like trash your publisher because that's not what I'm asking. Yeah. But I know there are pros and cons to publishing with an Amazon imprint okay. as opposed to, as you mentioned, a Dutton or a Flatiron. So yeah. Can you talk about those a little bit? So what I will say is I don't get to go to a bookstore and be like, oh, there's my book. Except for Watchung Booksellers, which is local fantastic bookstore in my town um watch on booksellers and um on fairfield street and it is um you know i did a book launch there so my book is on their shelves but amazon is the competitor of everybody else Mm -hmm. so you can order my book through any bookstore you want you can even order my book through barnes and noble you can order it from your a mom and pop book bookstore near you but I know Amazon's Amazon. Most people go online and it's easy. So in that respect, you know, I don't get to enjoy that. I, I am guessing that it may not be the first book that's going to be that's going to be reviewed by the New York Times because it is Amazon. And I think people have a lot of feelings about Amazon. I understand that. But I do know that Little Eight Books have won book awards and gotten a lot of attention. And um, a thing that's changed recently is that libraries can get the ebook. Mm-hmm. What else? I know it, it's hard to talk about publishing paid me and the racial <laughs> discrepancy, you know, how we, we saw mm-hmm. what white men were getting for their debut and what black men, black women who were, who had published were getting for their debut. They did really nicely by me. I will say, I'm not going to say the number, but like, you know, I, when I look at that, I have not weighed in on publishing paid me because I'm, I'm a little like, hmm. it's Amazon and, and Amazon's got deep pockets. It's Amazon and Amazon has deep pockets. Although when, when I first started, you know, when I got, when Celia asked for my book, I went on all my zillions of Facebook writer groups like who knows anything about these Amazon imprints and people are like, well, they hard, they pay teeny advances. So I didn't expect what I got. And mm-hmm. I think they I think they do it differently now. Mindy Colling just started um a her own imprint. Her oh, wow. own imprint at Amazon. Yeah. Um so it's it you know, just saying it's more and more legit. So they did, yeah, they did they did all right by me. And and partially it's Amazon's got deep pockets. They spend a lot, I think, on marketing. And I did get, they did choose my book for Amazon First Reads. That was kind of like a big boon for it. So now that we've talked about the book a little bit, you have it with you? So you can read a little something from it? I have it. Yes. Can you read a little excerpt for us? Black and published family, it's time for the reading. Embers on the Wind is a novel of intersecting stories about Black motherhood. From a pregnant enslaved girl running toward freedom to a teenager who has a summer fling, and an affluent doctor who overcompensates for her white husband and biracial child. Every mother ends up at Whitaker House in the Berkshires, a former stop along the Underground Railroad, where spirits still haunt and stories never die. Here's Lisa. I'm going to read at random in the middle of a chapter um, that is called Cellar Spirits. And there's a young girl, it's 1984, three 
And a young girl named Pam has visited Whitaker House. She's from Boston, Dorchester, a housing project, and um, had a little fling with the white son of the Whitaker family in the root cellar where the spirits kind of saw her and came to life. And she doesn't know, she didn't know then, but she had gotten pregnant and the spirits kind of glommed onto her. Manhattan, March 1984, outside in the darkness, exhausted, scared, open to the elements, cloth between her legs, rubbing against the place where she's torn, baby tied to her, hidden under her cloak. She prays there's body heat for them both. Girl looks up, the moon and the moving lights, white, red, blue, are too bright to see the stars. How will she find the one pointing north? We feed her the songs till her lips move in time. Follow the drinking gourd, Dawn, Dresden, Shrewsbury, Puce. The chill inside her persisting, muscles straining with fatigue. She knows the feel of fever, wills it away. Steal away to Jesus, swing low, sweet chariot. Babe at her breast, fussing. No notion of turning back, no good to abandon course. Keep moving, girl. Keep singing. One star will always glow bright enough to light your way. Girl sees it now. That's the one. Hope stirs her heart. If it wasn't like the sky in Monterey, which was full of stars that the long-haired Burke boy had named for her. At first, only the moon and the flashing lights of airplanes broke through the smog. But once her eyes adjusted to the city sky, Pam was able to make out a single bright star. She alternated her gaze between it and the street signs. East 77th, Park Avenue, East 78th, East 79th, the buildings here were enormous and stately, with uniformed men guarding the entries, their gazes hardened, aiming past her when she glanced their way. A wild-haired man staggered along the sidewalk, the lips of a bottle emerging from a bag in his hand. As he passed, Pam recoiled from his scent, nearly losing her balance. She clutched a street sign just as a taxi cab paused to release a fur-clad woman into the care of one of the doormen. Pam looked down to avoid notice. A woman, even one in a fur coat, would be curious about her bundle, would sense the baby, and want to take her away. Thank you. So you talked a little bit about the origins of the novel being inspired by the home of your father-in-law. But I want to say in the book, you note that it took you, baby, like you thought about this story for what, 17 years? What was it about the the myth of the house and the history of the house that you think just, you know, attached itself to you and wouldn't let you go until you finally got it out in this novel? I am not somebody who is a big believer in ghosts, but I love the idea that there might be. Hmm. And I do believe in a supernatural connection between the ages. Like when you go to a place that you haven't been for years and years and you can feel your old self back there and you can almost see yourself. So I always thought about this ghost and I always had this belief that I kind of owed her something because if, if I didn't tell her story or if I didn't think about her and what her life meant, who would? Hmm. And so that was kind of like, I, I'm not going to leave you. I don't know how I'm going to find out about you. Because they did sell the house. But it was like, I, 
there's something, there's a reason that I was brought to you and you were brought to me, whoever you are. And that, that belief evolved that it was kind of my job to tell her story. Does that make sense? I hope that answers that question. No, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, how much do you think changing the narrative and language around slavery and about emphasizing black people's humanity how much does that, you know, assuage white guilt and then change the, the story and the narrative of slavery itself? I think it changes it for for black people, for young black people to say, this is part of my story. This isn't my identity. I have been enslaved. I am seeking freedom as opposed to I am a slave mm-hmm. that is my owner. It's It's more like, no, that's my enslaver. This person did this thing. And it it corrects the balance. You have this line on page 91 where you say, so all we have is the legend, the oral history, as it were. As a Black person, do you feel cheated that in terms of this history, it's only the legends? We yeah. We don't have any like, concrete We weren't allowed to learn to read. Well, that, but then, I mean, I always have this discussion, like as a Black person in America, you can only trace your lineage back so far. Right, there right, there right, is right. a natural stopping point. And so yeah. w- that line made me wonder, do you feel cheated out of not being able to trace your history m- more further? Oh, definitely. I mean, I have I feel lucky because so Ancestry.com somehow there were enough I, I somehow went further back. Hmm. And my my dad ha- my dad had a lot of brothers and a lot of uncles. And what I know is my dad's family, they were old when they had kids. So my dad was 43 when I was born. His dad was 45, I think, when he was born. Mm. Meaning my grandfather, not my great-grandfather, my grandfather was born in 1880. So my great-grandfather, that's one great, my great-grandfather was born in North Carolina into slavery. Wow. And that was George Williamson. So our generations are are big and long. So I was able to, just because I know the name of my father's father, Moses Williamson, and I know the name of his father, George Williamson, on Ancestry.com, I was able to trace back to slavery. Yeah, so I, I, do, I do feel cheated, but I have nothing to compare it to. Mm. Because my mother's father left the Soviet Union in... Um, 1915 to escape the pogroms um in order to survive a lot of russian jews i would say a huge number of russian jews married into the communist party or denied that they were jewish to to survive my lineage in russia ended completely so i can go further back on the black side of my family than i can on the white side of my family wow you have all these different pieces and parts of your identity and then Mm -hmm the characters in your book have all these different pieces and parts of their identities, but their stories, they're all interlinked. I don't want to say that it's like you have a fractured identity or that the characters are fractured, but I am noticing that they're just, they're just bits and pieces of things mm-hmm. that, that's in some ways come together, but in, in the novel, but in other ways are still unsettled. And I don't mm-hmm. know, what of yourself did you bring to and bring to the writing, I guess, is the question. Yeah. So I think it reflects the fact that I only have access to pieces of my identity. 
Like there are, you know, I only have, like, I, I, I wish that I had known my, my father's mother who I'd look exactly alike, by the way. Oh, wow. I, I have pictures of her and like, I'm yeah. So she died before I was born, but I would have liked to hear her stories and I know things about her, but I think there is a fractured part to not growing up with, you know, I, I listen to your podcast a lot. I really love your podcast and Thank something you. I love. There are a lot of women that you've interviewed who talk about their aunties, you know, they're who talk about black Southern culture and, and the women who carried forward the culture and, you know, like reading Alice Walker, reading bell hooks and reading about the legacy of black women that get handed down. Like I didn't grow up with that. You know, I grew up, I was very close to my mom and I can't imagine having anybody else. Cause she was, she was amazing. What we shared was amazing, but I never had the legacy of black sisterhood, black motherhood, black womanhood. Mm. And so that's a piece that's missing for me. And I would have liked to know my grandmother and they called her mother D here and and that was just the sign of respect and she wore church hats every sunday <laughs> and after church you know during the great depression she filled her porch with with food for anybody who was hungry and she did not trust the frigidaire so when people would put things in the frigidaire she would take them out and put them out on the table overnight but she did not understand what the point was with that you know, she didn't trust yeah so that was there are stories i know about her but there are fragments and a lot of the characters in this book were splashes of paint against the wall initially because mm. they were short stories. And I developed them further and I developed their relationship. But I think in, in exploring all of those different things and the motivations of all of the characters, it, it, it shows what is lacking from all of them and in a way all of us mm -hmm. as people like even as complete yeah. as we think we are we we can always point to a missing piece somewhere in this mm -hmm. novel that you have is these stories that intersect you've got ghosts and seances and mm -hmm. the reckoning with history and ancestry what do you want readers to take from this masterpiece that you've created <laughs> i'm gonna speak to what I've read in reviews because I don't know that I knew because I don't think he set out to write a book saying I want people to take away but of course they asked me that when you know in the marketing thing they they asked me that I've seen some reviews from black women who have said I so much of this resonated with me you know being kind of an island of blackness where I am one woman talked about how how hard it is to navigate a present while wearing the past on your back and every interaction we have there is an echo of where we've come from you know when someone talks over you when someone you know neglects to acknowledge your personhood you know they refer to you as she instead of saying your name um there's an echo i've had a lot of reviewers who were white saying and this isn't necessarily what I meant or thought of but a lot of reviewers who are white has said I have I never thought about white privilege this way 
But I think what I want people to take away from it is there are so many different realities of race and race relations. And I know this book is very binary in terms of black, white. It exists and it lives. And class, you know, I think class is a really big thing in this book, too. But none of the but class doesn't take away race. You know, class doesn't protect you from racism. Mm. And I think that if there is, you know, if there is a tendency to see racism and racial issues, like in the white world, if there is a tendency to see racism and racial issues as something that happened a while ago, I, I think that in this book, it's so ever present. And I think black people know it is ever present. Hmm. I want to transition now to the speed round in the game before okay. we go for the afternoon. So okay. what is your favorite book? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois. And I add to that, their eyes were watching God because there's nothing more brilliant than, than Zora Neale Hurston's language. Um, so I'm, I'm giving you a lot. Song of Solomon. And I just read recently um, Neruda, Neruda, I don't have a good Spanish accent, On the on Park. Park by Clavis Natera. Oh my yes. gosh, I love that book. Okay. See, now I got to get, I heard Clavis's, uh episode on Donnie and Disha's podcast. And so now mm. I want to talk to her. So I got to read her that. book. Um, yeah. Who is your favorite author? Toni Morrison. I'm sure so many people on your podcast say that, but 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 it's true. And I think that, like, I used to go around saying the bluest eye should be required reading for anybody who is a human being. What is your favorite ballet? My favorite ballet is called Great Galloping Gottschalk. Nobody performs it anymore. The choreographer is Lynn Taylor Corbett. And I would pay, if I could, American Ballet Theater to re- to do that ballet again. So you've lived a lot of life. Ballet, writing, therapy, mm-hmm. Princeton. Name three things on your bucket list. Three things on my bucket list. Um, I've got my bucket list. Having my kids, getting a book published. Um, those are my big ones. Having a ballet, you know, getting to a ballet company. So I need a new bucket list for later yeah. in life. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's do this. A writer's retreat. I would love to go on a writer's retreat. I would love to do a TED Talk, but I have no idea about what. <laughs> And I would love to learn a different language. So what language would you like to learn? Probably Spanish, just because I think it's the most versatile. But I don't know. (laughs) I would also like to learn modern Hebrew. You know, it is, it's also my people. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I I get it. So I was like, "Eh, no, I get that one. What is your hidden talent? My daughter would argue with this, but I'm pretty good at cooking without a recipe. And making things taste pretty good. <laughs> Why would your daughter argue with you? Because every you know, whenever I cook, she's got a. She likes a recipe. She likes going by the. She's a by the book cook. Okay, so I'm gonna go to the game rewriting the classics. Name a book that you wish you would have written. Um, my senior thesis was about Virginia Woolf. I did a, a, a ballet about my theory behind her suicide. So I choreographed a ballet about Virginia Woolf, and that was my my whole senior thesis. And I played Virginia Woolf, so she was a black woman in my the- in my thesis. 
That's um, <laughs> so, you know, my adult writer self was born as a result of, of being immersed in what I perceived to be Virginia Woolf's psyche. Hmm. And there was a lot that I related to about her in terms of the madness and the eating disorder and the identity, you know, for her, her search for identity and the never enough. So there was a lot that I related to her in there. All right. Uh, name a book where you want to change the ending and how would you do it? Oh, boy. I'm thinking about it. I don't know. I don't know if I can do that one. <laughs> okay. And then the last question, the messy question, name a book that you think is overrated or overtaught and why? <laughs> um, I really feel like Faulkner is overrated and overtaught. I think that he is worshipped and I find him so hard to stomach mm. because yes, we know he was a product of his time and everybody was racist back then and all, all that stuff. But it's like, I think there's a huge value, a huge value to Faulkner, but I think he's given more weight than he deserves. Okay. So my last question for you today, after everything that you've done, when you are no longer here and among the ancestors, what would you like someone to write about the legacy of words and work that you left behind? It was beautiful and it resonated. And I don't care kind of how or why, but that would be enough. Because I think, because the beauty of the beauty of language and the choreography of fiction, that's important to me. The rhythm of words on a page, that's important to me. The beauty of it, the aesthetics of writing. Thank you, Lisa. That was beautiful. Big thank you to Lisa Williamson Rosenberg for joining us here on Black and Published today. Make sure you check out Lisa's debut novel, Embers on the Wind, out now from Little A Books. And if you're not following Lisa, check her out on the socials. She's at Lisa W. Rosenberg on Twitter and lwrose.author on Instagram. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Lisa about growing up with a white mom who couldn't do her hair and the intervention that came thanks to Duke Ellington's granddaughter. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holla at y'all next week when our guest will be Chinadu Achebe, author of the novel, The Miseducation of Obi Ifanye. I think a lot of times the publishing game is a lot more geared toward uh, what white women want to read. Like if women, white people, say give you the stamp then i think you can go and i think a lot of times i've learned they hype these books up and i'm like okay this book is cool i read it i look I'm like, yeah. but then when i see all the people who hype it up they're all white and i was mm-hmm. like did black people like this that's next week on black and published i'll talk to you then peace <laughs>